I attended a very small college in the US. And something I particularly enjoyed during my four years of study was the opportunity to follow many of the different college or university sports teams. I knew a lot of the players on those different teams, so it was fun to, for me anyway, to go to volleyball games and baseball games and football games and basketball games and, and be able to watch my, my friends compete, also just because I love sports. As I said, though, it was a small college, and there was one day I specifically, where there was a very important football game. Now, okay. When I sing football in this context, I'm talking about American football. I know it doesn't make sense that it's called football because they don't use their feet, so we should call it arm ball or hand ball or something different. But just so that we're all on the same page, when I say football right now, I'm talking about American football. So there was a very important football game. It was a playoff game. I was looking forward to going to it. At the time, I was dating a girl who uh, did not like sports. But on that particular day, she insisted on going with me to the football game. She really wanted to go. And I wasn't very happy about that, to be honest, because I knew she wouldn't enjoy it. And I knew that uh, as the game went on and into the second half, she might start making suggestions that maybe we could leave early. Maybe we didn't really need to stay all the way to the end. And I didn't want that because I wanted the freedom to just be there and fully enjoy it. So we're on our way to the stadium, we're walking across the campus, and we're talking about this, this issue. And she stops me and she says, wait just a second, Nathaniel, I want you to know something. I love football. She said, when I was a, when I was a child, my dad had season tickets to the Alabama Crimson Tide football team. And I know that for many of you that means nothing, and that's okay. You don't really need to know about it. But it's a big deal in the United States, okay, this particular university team. And we would go every home game. We would go as a family. And I loved it. I loved watching the cheerleaders. And the halftime show was always so spectacular. And I loved listening to the bands. And I liked watching the mascots and how they would interact on the sideline with other fans. I love football. And I looked at her and I said, none of those things you listed have anything to do with football. And remember, we are at a very small college. And so this game that we're going to right now won't have any of those things. There will be no cheerleaders. There will be no band. There will be no halftime show. There will be no mascots. It's just football. The essence of the football game is football, the sport. Ever since Jesus ascended into, do you like that real smooth transition there? Did you guys catch that? It's real. Ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, humanity has tried to add to or detract from salvation and what it means to be saved. In Acts 15, we're going to watch as the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem wrestle with this question. What is the essence of salvation? And how do we live it out? What is the essence of salvation and how do we live it out? 
Now, they're going to answer those questions, and their response is going to become a standard for the church for all time throughout history. And I'm going to read this passage today from from chapter 15 of Acts, and we're going to be answering two questions about salvation. How do we get it, and how do we live it? Before I read this, though, if you look at the page and if you've been paying attention to this series in Acts, you'll note that I've skipped a passage. Given what I shared with you all at the end of the service last week, we're going to have to shift into a different gear, a higher gear in Acts, if we're going to make it through um, by the 1st of August. So for that reason, there will be certain passages we might skip over, not because they're unimportant, but because we're moving quickly to get to the end. So there are times where we might skip a passage, but I will summarize its content for us. And I want to do that right now, just with the end of chapter 14. What happens there is that Paul and Barnabas have reached the end of their outgoing missionary journey. They turn around and they go back through all the places they visited on their way back to Antioch. But they do something in each of those cities that's important. In each city, they establish leaders for the local church. And those leaders are called elders. So the two things I want you to remember from this summary are the importance of having clear, godly leadership in the local church, number one. But number two, that there is a plurality of leadership a plurality of elders. So there is never an example in any New Testament church where there is only one leader. It's always in the plural. Elders are established and appointed in each church. So I want you to remember that going forward. And that brings us to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the center of the book of Acts. Both, as it's, both physically as it's laid out on the page, but also theologically. As the church wrestles with this question, what is the essence of salvation? How do we get it? How do we live it? Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. 
He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. We're going to stop with the reading there, but if you look at the page, you'll see that the following account through almost the end of chapter 15 is simply the story of the letter that they send, that the Jerusalem church leaders send to the Gentile believers in Antioch in the surrounding vicinity. Now, as I told you earlier, two questions we want to answer about salvation. How do we get it? And how do we live it? The first question is going to have two answers, and the second question is going to have four answers. Okay? So let's start with the first answer to the question, how do we get it? Briefly speaking, in just two words, God's grace. God's grace. Salvation begins and is offered to us by the grace of God alone. These Judaizers were teaching that in order to receive salvation, both Gentile and Jew needed to be circumcised and then adhere to the law of Moses. I mean, that's a very bold statement to make. They said it flat out. The ones who traveled to Antioch said, if you are not circumcised, you cannot be saved. Wow. Now, do you see, however, that obedience to the law of Moses puts salvation under control of the individual? It means that that person's going to earn their salvation. How? By obedience and by circumcision. But as Peter, Paul, and Barnabas respond to this argument that's put forward by some who are of the party of the Pharisees, they place the onus of salvation entirely on the grace of God. First, Peter, in verse 7, he states that it was God's choice to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Now, we've talked about this the last couple weeks. When the Bible speaks of God's choice, that is God's sovereign choice apart from any effort, ability, or even desire on the part of a human individual. It's, It's not because anyone deserves that choice. It's God acting in his grace. That choice of God's is grace. So God 
chooses to share the gospel with the Gentiles through Peter. Then later in verse 14, James speaks up. Now, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He has become the lead apostle or the primary leader of the Jerusalem church because Peter has left Jerusalem and is traveling as a missionary now. In fact, this is the last time that we're going to hear very much about Peter at all in the book of Acts. So James stands up and he re-emphasizes this, this idea of God's choice. What words does James say? He says, God intervened to choose a people for his name from among the Gentiles. Now, that's the very same vocabulary that the Old Testament uses to describe God's choice of Israel. That God chooses Israel from among the nations to be his people. Now, in the New Testament, we have James affirming that God has intervened among the nations to choose Gentiles as a people for himself. So we have Peter and we have James, and then right in the middle, sandwiched between those two, Peter states it directly in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord that we are saved, just as they are. How do we get salvation? The grace of God gives it. Grace is the action of God apart from our efforts, apart from our deserving, apart from our human righteousness. Grace is Jesus on the cross paying for our sin even without us asking him to. Grace is God choosing to save people even though we were all in rebellion against him. Salvation is by the grace of God. However, and this is our second answer, there is a human response required. A human response to God's grace, and that is the response of faith. Paul is going to write in Ephesians 2, a little later on in his life, that we are saved by grace through faith. In verse 9, we hear the apostle Peter speaking, saying of God, He did not discriminate between us and them, meaning between Jew and Gentile, for he purified their hearts by faith. But even faith itself is a gift. Faith is a gift that God gives humanity by which they can choose to believe in the gracious activity of God. So faith is to accept, to believe that we are sinners, utterly broken and separated from God by sin. To believe that by his grace and love, God the Father sent Jesus the Son into the world in human flesh. That Jesus then submitted to death by crucifixion and by dying this human death he paid for our sin. That Jesus did not remain in the grave, that he did not rot and decay, but he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him or keep him and that he ascended into heaven and today sits at the right hand of the Father. This is our response of faith, to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, it can be difficult, perhaps, to understand this relationship between grace and faith. If, why is it that you say that grace is totally a gift of God and that salvation is by grace, but then you say there's human responsibility or a human response of faith? Well, let's look at it through Christ's activity. So do you remember 
There are a number of accounts in in the Gospels of Jesus healing people. But let's think about specifically the time where Jesus heals the man who was lame. He was lowered through the the ceiling of the house. Remember, his friends dug apart um, the roof and they they lowered the lame man on the mat. Maybe if you want to, if, if some of you have seen one of the more recent episodes of The Chosen, maybe you can picture that in your mind, the lame man by the pool, by the Bethesda pool there, who's been lying there for years and years and years, hoping against hope to be able to get into the water to be healed, and he can never make it, he never gets there soon enough, and his life is just ebbing away. Well, Jesus comes on the scene to both of those lame men, and what does he say? He says, you are healed, in so many words. Take up your mat and walk. The grace of God is the healing. That's undeserved. It's unearned. It's given freely. And the person is healed. But the person has to respond in faith. They have to believe that they're healed, right? Because I put myself in that situation of that man lying there for years and years and years and years and some random stranger says to me, you're healed, get up and walk. Am I going to believe that? Am I even going to try to move my legs or bend my knees? Or am I so sick of a life of profound disappointment that I just ignore it? The faith response is to obey and stand, to live into the grace of God, the healing that he's already given. And so the human responds with faith, belief in Jesus, belief that what he's done is real, belief that his grace has been offered and given, belief that salvation has been extended. Our faith can only be a response to the grace of God that's already at work in salvation. So the essence of salvation, how do we get it? by the grace of God and through faith in him. But that leads us then to the second half of that question because not only do the Jerusalem elders define more clearly how salvation is received, but then they also spend the bulk of their time and most of the letter that they send to the Gentile Christians defining how they're supposed to live out their salvation. So the first answer to how do we, or how did they, or how does any Christian live out their salvation, that which they've already received from the Lord, is by accepting the scandal of the gospel. Accepting the scandalous nature of the gospel. Although cultures come and go, They rise and fall. They change. The gospel is a constant that will always be countercultural. Depending on the era of history, the aspects of the gospel that defy culture and society, they might change based upon how different cultures change. But the gospel will not change and it will never be fully in agreement with any earthly human culture. And as people who call ourselves Christians or claim to believe in Jesus, we have to accept the fact that the gospel to which we are called is countercultural, meaning it is going to cause and create scandal at some point. It is going to come in conflict with society. And this is 
what's at the core of the demand that these Judaizers were making that Gentiles had to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. So if we read that today, it just sounds to us as though they're being legalistic and making things harder for the Gentiles. And they are making things harder for the Gentiles, but that's not the primary issue. Remember, so far, all the persecution we've seen in Acts has come from Jews or it's been stirred up by Jews. It has not originated with Gentiles. As far as the Gentiles are concerned, what's one more religion? You know, we have so many. There's so many in the pantheon of the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, the Roman emperor cult. One more is no big deal. The bitterness revealed through the persecution that comes from the Jews, though, has at its root a refusal to accept that God could or would choose and love Gentiles as he had loved and chosen Israel. And so all that friction would go away, that risk of persecution would go away, all that rage would vanish if these Christians would just require that all Gentiles become Jews first. If the Jews would just say to, if the Jewish Christians would just say to these Gentile converts, you know what, you can be saved, but before you do that, you've got to convert to Judaism. So you've got to get circumcised and you have to agree to follow the law of Moses. Then all that persecution, all that risk, all that danger would vanish. Because the issue was that somehow Gentiles would be able to approach God directly apart from the Mosaic law? No, absolutely not. And that led the Jews to persecute the Christians. So yes, the Judaizers are making things more difficult for the Gentiles, but they were also making things easier for themselves. The gospel was scandalous to the Jewish culture of the day because it recognized Gentiles as equals with Jews in receiving salvation and receiving the favor of God. So these Judaizers were trying to avoid that scandal. They wanted to make the gospel more culturally and socially acceptable, at least in their context. They wanted to make their lives easier and less threatened by persecution. Now today, the issues may be different, but the gospel is no less scandalous. It's no less counter-cultural today than it was in the first century. What Christ created and has taught and modeled and led and commands today is going to and does come in conflict with society all the time. So consider with me what are some ways that the church, that we as individuals and as a body, what are ways that we might be pressured or tempted to compromise what the gospel presents in order to avoid being unpopular? or being ostracized or even persecuted by society at large? How do we live out the scandalous nature of the gospel? I mean, maybe these are, this is low-hanging fruit that's easy to, to pick right now. But what about issues of gender? I mean, Scripture... God himself affirms clearly that he made only two and that there is a link, a direct link to biological sex and that one, uh, an individual is not free to choose their gender. I mean, that's something that, man, if, if we as a church could let go of that, it would make our lives much easier 
in the context of the world and in society at large. What about sexual, what about human sexuality in general? Sexual ethics that we would affirm that only one, there's only one acceptable form or expression of human sexuality, one man and one woman uh, in a covenant relationship for life. I mean, that is incredibly countercultural right now. And of course, if, if we take a stand on that, we are going to suffer, perhaps not to a terrible degree, but it's going to make us unpopular at the very least. These are just a couple examples. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that these are the only ones, but they're ones perhaps that are at the forefront of, of what we as a church face today when it comes to the scandalous nature, the, the countercultural nature of the gospel and its affirmations. That Jesus is the son of God and that he took on flesh, that's scandalous in and of itself, particularly to the Jewish mind in the Old Testament era. So are there things that we would prefer to deny or downplay in order to make ourselves more acceptable to society? Yes, there are. And potentially even at an extreme to avoid persecution? Yes, there are. But if we are to live out salvation we must be willing to receive the gospel and receive God's commands as they are even when they are scandalous and even when they are countercultural secondly living out the gospel living out salvation rather means seeking unity in the body of Christ when you hear the list of requirements that the apostles send to the Gentile believers, does it sound a little odd to you? Perhaps a little random? I mean, there's, yes, absolutely, okay. Uh, we've just been dealing with these incredibly major issues about what salvation is and who can be saved, and now we're going to boil this down into four affirmations, okay? Avoid blood, avoid the meat of strangled animals, don't eat uh, meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and avoid sexual immorality. So maybe the sexual immorality one, we can say, okay, I get that, but is it really that essential, those other three? Um, blood, strangled animals, food sacrificed to idols? I mean, the, didn't they just decide that Gentiles didn't need to follow the law of Moses, and then they put on them food laws that aren't essential for salvation, laws that we, as far as I know, I, I don't follow those particular food laws today, um, I don't think most of us do. So those aren't essential for salvation, right? But we have to understand what is behind these admonishments for the Gentiles to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals. It's not salvation that's behind them, but rather it's the unity of the body of Christ and the consideration and sensitivity that we should show others in the body of Christ who are different than we are. That's the key. And so what James and the other apostles are trying to communicate is how essential unity is in the body of Christ. And we get there by self-sacrifice, by being willing to let go of things that are important to me for the sake of my sisters or brothers. So we need some background here, though. And the background has to do with what is called table fellowship. The sharing of meals, which was a very important aspect of the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. 
And of course, the Levitical law uh, gives a lot of guidelines about what the Jews were allowed to eat and what they were not allowed to eat and with whom they were allowed to eat. So they were not to eat with unclean people, meaning Gentiles, those who were not Jews. Now think about the idea of sharing a meal. First of all, imagine it tracing it through, through scripture. There's a wealth of information and a wealth of theology that's linked in the Bible to children of God sharing meals together. You can go back into Genesis even. Abraham, when, when the pre-incarnate Christ comes to him with the two other angels um, to warn him about what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, but also to reaffirm the promise of a son, what does Abraham do? What's the first thing? He welcomes them and he says, hold on a second, let me get a meal ready. They have a meal together. They share a meal. That's fellowship. And we can go on and trace it through the Passover meal that God would choose to have his people, Israel, remember their delivery from slavery by sharing a meal together. Today, a little later, we're going to come to, to the communion table. That's the sharing of a meal also in fellowship. And we can go on. Scripture ends at the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, this great celebration of union of Jesus with his bride, the church. And it's celebrated with a meal. So this is traced through Scripture. And think about it, even today. Consider how much of our relationships are built or deepened over food. Or at the very least, over coffee, right? Ah, vamos tomar un café. Let's get together. Let's have a coffee together, you know? Vamos almoçar. Even within families, when is a lot of our relating done? At the dinner table, or at the breakfast table, over meals. And the image that scripture gives of this is the unity and the fellowship that occurs in those moments. So that's why the Jews were not supposed to have table fellowship with those who were unclean, because it's talking about communion, unity. And this is why the apostles focus in on just three of these food laws, the, the, perhaps the most essential, the ones that for Jews would strike closest to their heart and to their heritage. And so, because we know from Paul's many other writings that none of these prohibitions are going to keep someone from being saved. Paul writes extensively about food sacrifice to idols and the freedom that Christians have to eat that food depending on their conscience. Um, and so it's actually interesting that the James and the other apostles pull out only three but there are really three that have to do with blood, which blood and idols, which are absolutely essential. And what's being affirmed here is that both Jew and Gentile are being called to give something up for the sake of unity within the scripture. So you can imagine, or I can imagine, James saying in our vernacular of 2021, okay, Gentiles, listen. Jews are already giving up a bunch of stuff to you guys, okay? You don't have to be circumcised. And listen, you think these three food laws are a big deal. Let me tell you what we've grown up with. You know, no shellfish, no pork. You know, you can't mix dairy and, and meat, you know, and on and on and on. You can go, there are so many laws. But listen, we don't want to burden you with that. That's not essential to salvation, 
But in return, we would ask that you would do something for us to help our unity, that you would show sensitivity to your Jewish sisters and brothers by agreeing that when you're meeting together, you would not eat food sacrificed to idols or blood itself or the meat of strangled animals that hasn't had the blood drained out of it. Can we show this kind of consideration and sensitivity to each other for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ? Can we do that? And this is the first principle, or the second principle, rather, of how we live out salvation. We do so by seeking unity in the body, by showing consideration and sensitivity to those who are different from us. During the two years that I worked on the Dulaw ship after high school, um, during those two years, we spent some time in South Korea. Each time we were coming into a new country, the ship would do what they would call, actually now I forget what they called it, but anyway, it was getting us ready for this new culture that we were going to visit to make sure that we wouldn't offend people in that culture. I remember as we were getting ready to, what did they call that? See, there's, there's some ex-Duloids here. What, what did they call that? Country orientation. Country orientation. That's it. Thank you, Topher. Country orientation. I remember before sailing into South Korea, in um, the, the country orientation, they talked to us about how for the South Korean culture, it was extremely important that people dress nicely for church. So it was expected that those of us men on the ship would wear suits and ties if we visited a local church, and that the woman would dress, would wear dresses or skirts um, that were attractive and, and modest, and that this was a way that we were going to honor our sisters and brothers who were South, members of the South Korean church. So how could we react to that? It, was wearing a suit and tie to church required for salvation? I hope not. No, it's not. So we can go into that whole argument, right? What's my right? What is my right? Well, God says, the Bible says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And, you know, all you people are so obsessed with the outer appearance, so I'm going to rebel because there's nothing inherently holier about a suit and tie than there is about shorts and a t-shirt. So I don't care about your culture. I don't care about your preferences. I don't care about what you do. I'm going to wear a shortened t-shirt to your church to show you how spiritual I am and how outwardly focused you are. Is that loving? Is that, sensitive? Is that sensitive, being sensitive to the body of Christ? Is that showing consideration to sisters and brothers? Of course not. And as far as I know, no one on the ship had that attitude externally. Maybe they had it internally. I wore more suits those few weeks and I've worn the rest of my life, even as a pastor. You guys know this, you all know. Um, but the point is a willingness to consider the sensitivities and sensibilities of our sisters and brothers who are different than we are. Why? For the purpose of being united in the body of Christ with Jesus as our head. Who brought up this issue in the Jerusalem Council? says it was members of the party of the Pharisees. And what we are led to believe there is that the fact that they were Pharisees was more important to them than the fact that they were Christians. And this is a temptation that all of us face today, to put some kind of modifier 
before the word Christian when we define ourselves. So whether that's a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian or I'm a poor Christian, a rich Christian, a Brazilian Christian, a European Christian, I'm a white Christian, I'm a black Christian. Anytime that we put a modifier before Christian, then we are creating disunity in the body of Christ. Because our unity is in Jesus. Now, I'm not denying that there are differences. I'm not denying that there are modifiers, but those modifiers need to come after Christian. So a Christian Pharisee, a Christian person of color, a Christian American, a Christian Brazilian, a Christian European. You understand? Anytime that we put a modifier before Christian, we are moving away from unity and toward disunity because our identity and our unity is in Christ. And living out our salvation means striving for that unity, even if it means sacrificing some things that are important to me in order to be sensitive and have compassion on those who are different than I am. Now, this brings us to the third way that we are supposed to or that we should live out our salvation. There's one admonition in that list in the letter that seems out of place. It doesn't fit with the others, right? So we have the, the blood and the, and the idols, and, and then we, we have sexual immorality. Well, James, you know, you didn't do a very good job of organizing this, right? This doesn't seem to fit with the others, and why would you maybe take this particular command uh, and, and take it and, and emphasize it, but there's so many others, so many other potential sins you could have addressed. Why don't you address that here? Well, I know it's hard for us to imagine this today, but sexual immorality in the early days of the church outside of Israel was rampant. And it was actually beyond rampant. It was even beyond celebrated. It was common. It was normal. It was fully accepted as part of the culture, and it was an aspect of worship. So in all of these pagan temples, and remember that Antioch, Syrian Antioch, was a center of pagan worship. In these pagan temples, temple prostitutes were an essential part of their cultic practices. Both homosexual and heterosexual sexual activity was, was part of the way that they would worship their idols. Common normal, accepted. So when the Jerusalem elders are writing to people who live in that context, they bring out that point, not just to pick on that issue, but they're making a deeper statement about how Christians, so they're saying, you, you Gentiles, now you, you are becoming Christians, which is something totally different and unique. It's a transformation and it means being set apart from the broader culture. You are going to be unique, you are going to be different, and you're going to be pure, and you are holy. Holy means to be set apart. So they pick what perhaps is one of the most accepted and common 
aspects, sinful aspects, perverted aspects of the society in which these people live, and they say, here's an example. This is a way that we are all called to be different. Abstain from sexual immorality. Just that is already going to set you apart in Antioch, in Lystra, in Derby, in Ephesus, wherever it may be. This is what Paul is talking about when he, had, when he writes Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So don't be like everyone around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christians are to be different from the culture. And at the time of the early church, what would perhaps most set them apart from the surrounding culture would be a commitment to sexual purity, to faithfulness in and outside of marriage. And faithfulness in holding human sexuality is a great gift from God and therefore using it only according to his intent. That's gonna set people apart. Now, let me ask you a question. That's not that different from today, is it? And even within the church, unfortunately, you all know this, sexual purity is the exception. It's not the rule. It still stands out. And that, that is both a great testament and testimony to the faithfulness of God and to those people who follow him in that way, but it's also a great sadness. A few years ago, I was spending a couple days with a friend of mine in the U.S., actually someone who grew up here in Brazil as well with me, and we attended Calvary together as teenagers. And uh, Steve has been a, a pastor now in the U.S. for almost 25, maybe 26 years. And so a few years ago, we were, um, I was visiting them, and we were in a store. I don't even remember what store, and we encountered this young couple, and Steve had um, celebrated their wedding, and so he introduced us, and they chatted for a little bit, and then they left, and as we continued to shop, I don't know what we were looking for, but Steve turned to me and he said, you know, in my 23 years of pastoring, he said, I've lost count of how many um, couples I've either done premarital counseling with or I've celebrated their weddings. He said, but, I want, but, I, but I'll tell you something, Nathaniel, as far as I know, that couple was the only couple that got married and both of them were virgins. And he said, you know, it's, it's like that should define the church and instead it's, it's even within the church, it's an, it's an exception. So maybe our culture and our society really isn't that much different from the, the world at large in the first century AD where, where what's going to speak holiness into the culture would be the example of the dating couple that doesn't live together, the dating couple that's committed to purity, that doesn't have sex outside of marriage, and, and then married couples who are faithful to each other for life. And this we also know, that's the exception, isn't it? You meet somebody, or you meet a couple like Cullen and Janet Rast or like Bill and Mary Fawcett and you say, uh, well, you start talking to them and you find out they've been married for um, over half a century. And you're like, wow. 
And the wow isn't just because they've lived that long. The wow is because they've remained faithful. We don't have very many examples of that anymore, even within the church, right? But we live out our salvation set apart from the culture, different from the culture, uniquely because we are inhabited by the Holy Spirit and we are created and renewed in the image of God. Which brings us to our final point. The final way we live out our salvation, at least as it's illustrated in this chapter, is by submitting to the authority of Scripture. Obedience to and a valuing of Scripture is going to actually affect these other points. It's going to lead us into unity. It's going to differentiate us from the world around us. So I want you to note the role that Scripture plays in this passage. James, the brother of Jesus, as I said earlier, now the primary leader of the Jerusalem church, he hears all the arguments and he hears all the discussion. He hears Peter's story about how the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. He hears Paul and Barnabas share about the remarkable signs and wonders that God did through them among the Gentiles. And then what does he do? He evaluates those accounts with Scripture. Even, think think about this, even the filling of the Holy Spirit, James evaluates by Scripture. I I think if if I saw a miracle, a real, live, genuine miracle, signs, wonders... I think my temptation would be like, wow, amazing, that's God. And, and Paul and Barnabas are definitely trustworthy witnesses, and they tell about all these signs and wonders, but James still goes to the Scripture. And he says, does the Scripture confirm these things? And it does. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. So in one way, he says, hey, it's great that all these Gentiles are coming to the Lord, but does Scripture confirm that? It's great that the Holy Spirit, or at least Peter, you claim that the Holy Spirit came on Gentiles, but does Scripture confirm that? Paul, Barnabas, signs and wonders, amazing experience. Does Scripture confirm it? Sisters and brothers, there's, there's truth here, profound truth. Both the miraculous and even the work attributed to the Holy Spirit are evaluated and confirmed only by the word of God. And as we who are Christians, as those who claim to be saved, we need to live out our salvation under that authority, under the authority of Scripture itself. And Scripture must interpret our experience. No matter how miraculous or amazing an event, an occurrence, no matter how great a certain preacher is or a certain leader They must come under the authority of the word of God and they must be evaluated by the word of God. In a couple chapters, we're going to read about a city called Berea that Paul visits. And there's a very interesting statement made about the new believers in Berea. And the statement is this, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they received the message with gladness and searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. Wow. Paul's saying it, and the Bereans are saying, "Great, that's great, Paul. We respect you. 
but even you are not above scripture. So we're going to go back and look at the prophets. We're going to go back and look at the Torah. We're going to go back and look at the law of Moses. And we're going to see if you stack up. If what you're saying is true. We're going to search those scriptures and find out. So let's not be deceived. The word of God must be the ultimate authority, authority as we live out our salvation. Something else that I appreciate about James here, though, too, is that he knew the scripture. As, as children of God, this is his communication to us. Do we really know it? So that when James is hearing all these things, he has the answer. He has the confirmation from scripture. This is a lifetime proposition for all of us. But it's got to start sometime. Our commitment to and dedication to knowing, memorizing, internalizing, and obeying the word of God has to start sometime. Because God's not going to implant it into our minds when we need it if we haven't learned it. If we've taken it into ourselves, then when we need it, the Holy Spirit will activate that. He will bring that to our conscious memory. But we do have the responsibility of seeking it first. The word of God must be the ultimate authority as we live out our salvation. So now, to close, I briefly, as I often do, want to address two different groups that might be represented here this morning or online as well. The first group would be those of you that would say, I don't know what this salvation thing is that you're talking about. I would say that I'm not saved because I don't really know what it is. Maybe this is the first time you've been exposed to the concept. Salvation, when, when, when Christians talk about salvation, they're talking about being saved from destruction, being saved from death, being saved from separation from God. And sin has caused that. Sin has caused that separation. It's an irrevocable, by human means, it's an irrevocable breaking of the relationship between God and people. That's what sin does. So we need to be saved from our sin and saved from the consequences of our sin. And that's where the grace of God comes in that I talked about. You cannot earn or deserve salvation. It's impossible. You can never be good enough or work hard enough or be right enough to be saved. It is only by the grace of God. And so God extends that grace to you saying, I have already paid the price for your sin. It was paid by Jesus on the cross. Will you respond in faith? In other words, will you accept that? Will you believe it and receive the salvation that I'm offering you? So that's an invitation that's being made to you this morning. Now, the second group are those that would define themselves perhaps as already being saved. Well, I think we know what the challenge is to us here is to continue to live out that salvation faithfully. How? In the scandalous nature of the gospel, not compromising, not trying to soft pedal the what we might call the unpleasant aspects um, of, of the gospel and of the word of God to make, to make the gospel more attractive or at least to make us less at risk of persecution to genuinely seek the unity in the body of Christ through sensitivity and love toward, the, toward others who are our sisters and brothers, but they might be different from, from us. And living in purity, 
differentiated from the surrounding culture and society. And finally, with the word of God as our guiding light, our authority, and our standard.